Thank you, Steve. If you are um, visiting with us or uh, if you haven't been here in the past couple of weeks, um, uh, it's, it's probably need to tell you that this morning, uh, the next over the next starting last week, we're spending um, three weeks um, celebrating, taking a break from what we normally have been doing, which is going verse by verse through the book of Romans um, to, to take a break to kind of celebrate and to talk about the Reformation. Um, on October 31st, it will mark 500 years of, of the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther, where he famously um, nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church and started a Reformation beyond uh, his wildest beliefs. And uh, so this morning, we are going to continue in that study. And as we continue in the study this morning, what Gary and I have decided is that we were going to go through the what have been known as the solas, which um, which later sometime later after after the Reformation, the solas were brought forward as a as a good way to think about the theology of the Reformation. And that is scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone for the glory of God alone. And so uh I'm excited this morning to jump into this and uh, 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 interested in uh, to see how the brevity of touching these these huge topics that have meant so much to the to the church and really are not only central to the Reformation, but central to the Bible. And that's why they're important. And so this morning, uh, you're not going to hear last week, Gary did a great job, talked quite a bit about Martin Luther, and you're not going to hear a whole lot about Martin Luther this week. And there's two reasons. One is that Gary's already done that. The other is that the Reformation was not about Martin Luther, but the Reformation was about a return to biblical theology in trying to reform a church to purify the church. And there's something that Gary noted last week, and I've just been convicted needs to be noted again. And kind of speaks to the heart of why we would even have a study like this. And that is, is that Martin Luther was a man and he was a very flawed man. And one of the ways he was extremely flawed in his later years was his treatment of Jewish people. And some of the things that he said about Jewish people um, would make your stomach turn. And as Gary mentioned last week, don't look it up because it would it's not worth reading. But what it what it says to me, this great man that we celebrate, that God used him in in great ways. This man was not above the sin that was in his heart that God was working out of him and brings us back, brings us back to the principles of the Reformation and the principles that God used him to bring out. And that is it is not about a man, a philosophy a man's theology, but it's about the theology that we find in the Scripture. And it's about what the Scripture tells us. And so this morning, the goal, my, my heart name this morning, is for us to talk about these two monumental truths in a very limited amount of time. And hopefully that God will use this this morning to, to take you into a deeper place in your relationship with him and that you will see the scripture through the lenses of these two central themes and that it will change you. It'll change the way you read the Bible. It'll change the way you view life. It'll change the way that you do life. So with that in mind, let's jump into uh, our sermon this morning. And uh, one way of summing up the Reformation is to understand what was at stake 
was the issue of how man can be justified before God or how can man be saved? And at the center, at the center of this controversy was what was man's role in his salvation? What was man's role in his salvation? And so the theology of the Reformation was and is a theology that sees God as the main and only actor. And I'm, I'm using that term here, knowing that uh, maybe using the triune God as the actor uh, in salvation and that man is helpless and hopeless in sin. And that the only way that we can be forgiven or justified before an almighty, holy God is by his gracious mercy on our behalf. Now. You may say, yes, this is what I've always been taught. But what you need to know is during this day and time, this flew in the face of what was happening in the church. Then there was only one church. That's why in the creed, um, uh, we haven't taken out of the creed where it said the Holy Catholic Church, which means universal church. Um, but we do want you to know when we recite the creed and it says Catholic, we're not thinking of the Roman Catholic Church. This was this was this is a, a thought uh, that that was from after the Reformation. So when I use the church, I'm meaning the church of the day in the in the 1500s. The church believed that there were acts one must to perform to aid in their salvation. And these acts in aiding or applying God's salvation to us were known as sacraments. And so to truly understand the solace, one must understand the backdrop of the argument that the reformers saw this in a very, very different way. That as the reformers went to the Bible, as they went to the original source, they saw that there was only one way through which man could be saved. And so this brings up something that we talked about last week, but I just want to highlight before we go into the two solas that we're talking about. And that is, is that the Reformation was really about two main things. One was about how is man justified. But the foundation of that is sola scriptura. Through the scripture alone. And so another way to say that is that another aspect of the Reformation was all about authority. What has ultimate authority? And the reformers, the reformers believed, as we believe, as I believe, that there's only one authoritative source that we have been given, and that's the Bible. And the Catholic Church at the time, and still to this day, argues that... Not only is the Bible a source of authority, but the councils and traditions of the church, which also include the um, the words of the pope when he's speaking as a pope. Are also authoritative in line with scripture. That's why you have uh, even this this month, um, the pope came out and I don't know if you are aware of this and the issue is not uh, the main important thing that I want you to hear. I want you to hear how he worded this. But the issue that the Pope came out and talked about was capital punishment. And as he's talking about capital punishment, he stated that the theology of the Roman of the church was changing and had progressed, had adapted to now make capital punishment uh, 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 in the official doctrine of the church that the that the Pope was declaring that the church was always in every case against capital punishment. Now, think about capital punishment, what you may. That debate is for another thing. The thing for us to know is. Notice what happened. You have a man. 
coming forward and stating this is the official doctrine of the church. And to go against that doctrine means to go against the church. We don't believe that scripture is our authority. And so don't think this whole idea of reformation and this is, is lost on today. It's very important. And we're going to see that as we go forward. So if scripture over above church leadership, councils, philosophy, psychology is the authority, then we need to look to the Bible to discover the most important truths in the universe. And two of the most important truths in the universe that the Bible unpacks is who is God and who is man and what is our relation uh, to him. And this is vitally important to us as a church. Vitally important to us as a church, because as we will see in the book of Hebrews uh, at the end, is that it tells us in the book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews warns us in chapter two against drifting. And, and man left to himself, even with God's word, if we are not careful, we drift and we drift away from the center of who God is and who God wants us to be, how he's revealed himself in the scripture, what he has said about us and our dependence upon him. We drift from that to other things. And as John Calvin Noted over and over and over and over again in his writings that man, man, every one of us are very good at creating idols and we do so naturally. So this is important. So until glory, there will be a need for personal and therefore church reformation. And we always must go back to the scripture and sit under the scripture and let it speak to us. The only way these doctrines that we're talking about are important for us to sit into this pulpit and to talk about. The only way it's important is if, the, is if they are supported by Scripture. If they are not supported by Scripture and found in Scripture, then what we're doing over these next couple of weeks is futile and you should not listen. You should run away with your fingers stuck in your ears yelling, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> If Scripture is not our authority, then our arguments on these things don't matter. And, you know, Casey, a couple of weeks ago, or months ago, when we were, my wife Casey, when we were talking about what we were going to do and taking a break um, from the book of Romans, uh, she went with me to a conference that was very, uh, uh, it was Casey BJ and I at a conference that was very scholastic and very historical, and, and I just loved it. BJ loved it, and Casey was like, oh man, that's okay. And so one of the things that she said, and she's right, is when she heard that we were doing, it was on the Reformation, when she heard we were doing this, she was like, Lewis, this can't be a history lesson. And you're right, this can't be a history. History is important. But what I want you to see is that this means something. And I think that the, the goal of this and the goal of going through this is that if, we lo- if these doctrines are biblical, then if we lose these doctrines, we lose the church. And we've seen that. We've seen that. And we need to pray. We need to pray. And I believe there are believers in the Catholic Church. So don't hear me saying something I'm not saying. But we need to pray that the Catholic Church, during this time of thinking about the Reformation, we need to pray that the church, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church would be reformed. Um, and and that, that what comes front and center is, is the truth of the Bible. So today, and you're going to laugh at this, my goal is to try to uh, uh, talk about two things in the Reformation. And so today we will be discussing sola de la gloria, 
So for the glory of God alone and (laughs) in Christ alone. So let's jump into this. And I am excited about this this morning. So let's jump into this. And so we're going to move fast. So first, we're going to talk about for the glory of God alone. And my objectives in this in in this section of talking about for the glory of God alone is to is uh, is to is to talk about um, the, the glory of God as it was looked at in the Reformation and the need, the glory of God in Scripture. Uh, this is to define the glory of God um, and then talk about why it's important to us today. And so during the Reformation, during the Reformation, the, the reason that the whole idea for the glory of God alone, the reason that it came to the forefront is because the Reformers, when they went back to God's word, they saw for the glory of God alone all throughout Scripture, so much so, and I think they're right. I think they're right. And if you, if you read the Bible, if you read the Bible, I think you, the only conclusion, conclusion you come to is Randy, as he was leading us in worship this morning, talked about is that you and I exist, everything exists for the glory of God. It's everywhere. Over 200 times, I'm getting ahead of myself, but over 200 times in the Bible, it talks about The glory of God over 160 times in the New Testament. It talks about the glory of God. And so the reformers believed that the ultimate end and the purpose of all things was the glory of God. And this was seen everywhere in their writings. You cannot pick up uh, one of the reformers writings and it's not saturated with the idea of the glory of God. In all the liturgies, in the hymns that they wrote, in the catechisms that they were a part of. It all ended, ultimately, the ultimate ends of the universe was the glory of God. In fact, in fact, um, many of the reformers were criticized for not talking about man very much. And talking too much about God and his glory. And so it's no surprise the Westminster Catechism in the 1600s, which in many ways summed up the theology of the Reformation. And you know this, right? A catechism was a way that uh, and this still happens today, that, that many churches and parents taught their kids. It's called catechizing them, and that is teaching them truths of the Bible. And so there were questions and responses, and you know this one. What is the chief end of man? That's it. Right out of the Reformation. So this was the doctrine, the end, the goal, the purpose, sola dea gloria, that it's all to the glory of God. Now, what I want you to know and what you have to have in your mindset is that. Now, we could talk. There's so many things we can talk about here, but I want to focus in on the Reformation here for a moment. And so remember That the reformers, first and foremost, were thinking through how is man justified before God? And it was in this line of thought. So how is man saved? Which this phrase came out of. And so what I want you to hear, we could talk about we do all things for the glory of God. And, you know, if, if you've heard any of my sermons, I love to talk about eating chocolate cake and cheeseburgers for the glory of God. But what the reformers were talking about and are talking about here is that salvation, salvation terminates. So the end result of salvation, the ultimate purpose of salvation is the glory of God. 
And so what we have to ask ourselves now, and we're going to transition to the second point, is, is this scriptural? And I've focused on some scriptures that talk about salvation to the glory of God. And I hope you will see that it is. And as we've been going through the book of Romans, it's just all over the place. And so we've tried to point that out and we will we will continue to see that. So I just want you to, to, to hear some passages with me and, and we'll turn to the book of Ephesians in a moment. But I want you to hear a couple of Old Testament passages first. And there's many, many more than what I wrote down. Pages and pages of passages. But in Isaiah 43, verse 25. I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake. Many of you are familiar with this one. Psalm 115, 1. Not to us, and Randy read this this morning, not to us, but but to your name be the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, there are many other places in the New Testament that brings this idea out, but I, I, want, I want you to look at just two with me for a moment. In the book of Ephesians, if you'll turn there with me, chapter 1, I'm going to read verses uh, 4 through 6. So in Ephesians chapter one, starting in verse four. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Notice this. Why did he do this? Why did he predestine us? Why did he call us before the foundation of the world? Verse six, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us, his beloved. If your translation, I shouldn't say this, but I've already said I shouldn't say it, so I should say it. If your translation translation says to the praise of his glorious grace, that is a bad translation. The original language states it this way, and it's important that we get it this way. It is to the praise of the glory of his grace. So we see this. And then if we keep going in the book of Ephesians and look down at verses 11 and 12. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things, working all things after the counsel of his will. So it's talking about salvation here. He's, he works all, salvation according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12, to the end, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And then again in verse 13 and 14, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed that you were sealed with him, the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. And it's all throughout the New Testament. It's all throughout the New Testament. And in the book of Romans, we're in chapter 8 right now, and we're talking about salvation, and we're talking about the benefits of salvation, and we're getting ready to get into some really high weeds, some heavy stuff in Romans chapters 9 and verses in chapters 10 and 11 that talks about some difficult things about salvation and God's election and these sort of things. And what I want you to see is that before, as Paul ends that section talking about election, and before he starts into Christian living in chapter 12, look at what he says. In chapter 11, 
again, as he's as he's just talked about this great salvation. As he's finishing, he says this in, in verse starting in verse thirty three. Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable are his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or become his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. One writer talking about the theology of the Reformation says what distinguishes reformed theology is that it begins with man. It doesn't begin with man, but it begins with God. Here's the quote. God does not exist because of man. But man exists because of God. So God is not a cosmic being that we have created in order to make sense. Of some of the realities in our world. And therefore, God serves some sort of function to us. But what this writer Voss is saying is that we exist because we've been created by him. For a purpose. To glorify him. To glorify him forever. And one of my favorite verses on this is actually in the Old Testament. Again, in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 and 7. Midway through verse 6. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. Whom I have formed, even whom. I have made. And so what I hope you see from just this small survey um, here is that it's biblical. And just in case, just in case, I want to summarize it once more, because like I said, it doesn't matter what I say, what the reformers said. It matters what the Bible says. And I'm going to say this and I want you to write. I want you to get this in your head. The whole narrative of the Bible is about the glory of God. Help me out here. The heavens and everything in it were made for his glory. You and I exist and were made for his glory. Man's fall into sin was an assault on the glory of God. Romans 3.23 says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in the book of Revelation. We have this wonderful, wonderful picture. Wonderful picture. Where we will actually. And this gets. Uh, read C.S. Lewis on the way to glory here. You're welcome with it. Um, that we will share. We, we are as Christians. We already do. And. In heaven that we will somehow share in this glory. It's all throughout the Bible. The book of Revelation tells us that we will glorify him forever. And we'll be completely satisfied and overjoyed in that glorifying him forever. And it also tells us that his glory in the new heavens and the new earth will shine so brightly that there's no need for a sun any longer because the glory of God is there. In the book of Revelation, as John is called up into heaven, what is it that he finally sees and what is the end of man but the glory of God? So, 
now in a couple of minutes. (laughs) I'm going to define the glory of God. Uh, And this is harder than you think. And so I am just going to barely scratch a surface here and uh, hopefully whet an appetite for you to, to do further study. But the idea of the Old Testament word for glory of God, glory, and the, and the idea of the New Testament word doxa, where, uh, where we get doxology, glory in, in the New Testament, that the idea of the glory of God is something which radiates from the one who has it, leaving an impression. And we've got to be careful how we talk, because, because the glory of God is not something God necessarily possesses, but it's more of the radiance of who God actually is. And we see this all throughout the Bible. Uh, let me say this before we, we, we go there a little further. Secular Greek at the time uh, that the Bible was written, would this, this word doxa could be defined as a repute or praise or fame. And so as we look at the Bible... And as we think about that, the glory of God is the radiance of who God is. That, that's what the glory is. It's seen in his actions and his character and his word. That when you begin to look at the Old Testament and think about the times when the glory of God, remember, the glory was in the cloud. There was something radiating from that cloud. It was the glory of God. The glory of God filled the innermost of the holy of holies. The glory of God was there. It was radiating. And as was read earlier, Jesus, Jesus was the glory of the Father because he was the exact representation of the Father. And so anything that is true and noble is, is therefore related to God, has God's glory all over it. And in, then in the book of Revelation, like I just said, the glory of God is radiating in heaven. <laughs> and where, uh, again, I, I do want to say that uh, C.S. Lewis's sermon, The Weight of Glory, is the weight of glory is so helpful. And in that book, he says that we were created to see and experience and enjoy the glory of God. And he talks about it, I think, very biblically. That as we're talking about the glory of God, that it's, it's us radiant or reflecting the glory of God back to him. So if it's the radiance, then God gets more glory when he, when he sees us and we're radiant. We're looking like him in his character and who he is. And so when we start to understand this, we begin to see, oh, so salvation is about the glory of God, because in salvation, what happens is that God takes hopeless, helpless sinners and turns us into worshipers. And so we begin to reflect and to glorify God as we are becoming more and more like him. There is so much here. There is so much here. Salvation displays the glory of God because on in salvation, God's justice, his mercy, his power is displayed. And this is extremely important for us today. If sola gloria is biblical and I believe that it is, we must always question our motives. 
We must always think about why are we doing what we're doing? Are we giving glory to something that is undeserving? Or is the goal of our church and our lives the glory of God? Is the enjoyment of God our driving passion? Will we give our time, talent, treasure and praises to worship and to worship God or to other things? In the Reformation, in the Reformation, the the church had had become such a place that it was really, you know, through history, we know that it was more concerned about kingdom building and kingdom of this world versus to be on kingdom of God focused. And so one of the things that we must do individually and that we must always do as a church is we must ask, why are we doing what we're doing? And what should echo in our ears is the glory of God. Now, in way of transition, you know that when the Christ child was born to the Virgin Mary, that the angels came and gave a proclamation. And we all know what the proclamation is, right? Glory to God in the highest. That something happened in history to bring glory to God in the highest. And that is, is that God's very own son was born to come and to save and redeem a people for himself. And the angel's proclamation of glory to God. It could be said, and I think rightfully so, that the battle cry of the Reformation was Christ alone. Christ alone. He is the mediator between man and God. He's the mediator between man and God, not the church. Jesus' sacrifice, and here are the two words that I want you to remember. The two words that I want you to remember is, is that, that Jesus and his work was sufficient so that we could be justified before God. And his work, so we use the word sufficiency and exclusivity. Only Jesus, only Jesus and his work are the things that are needed so that we could be justified before God. He is the sole object of our faith. Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. And let me read you a quick quote by Charles Spurgeon. If thou, and sorry for the old English, if thou puttest one atom of trust in thyself, thou hast no faith. If thou dost place even a particle of reliance upon anything else but what Christ did, thou hast no faith. If thou dost trust in thy works, then thy works are antichrist. And Christ and antichrist can never go together. Christ will have all or nothing. He must be a whole savior or no savior at all. And the reason that this was important and vital during the Reformation is because what had happened is that the church, the Catholic church, had... Uh, in, they may argue with this language, and, and I would say even still, they, they may argue with this language, but I, I think it's the truth. And I think you saw this in, in, in some of Aquinas's, Thomas Aquinas's writings. He, he was, a, he was a, a church theologian, philosopher of the 1200s. And essentially what they were saying and what came out of the, the doctrine of the Catholic Church was that Christ's work on the cross is not sufficient. That the church was needed... To apply Christ's work to you and me. 
So in this thought, what you have is that the church, ultimately the church becomes. In my mind, I would say the mediator, they may say a mediator between Christ. God, Christ and man. And the way the way that the church mediates this in in Catholic Roman Catholic thought is through the sacraments. Through the sacraments, you know, baptism, confession, all these other things. It's, it's through the sacraments that this is the way the church is needed to apply this. Now, I'm going to a horrible reference here. Uh, my son probably knows where I'm going. But have, have you ever seen the movie Nacho Libre? So in Nacho Libre, uh, it's a silly movie. Don't watch it. It's funny, but you have this wrestler and he's a he's a Catholic. Uh, he, he's a uh, he's a monk. And he takes care of these orphans in orphanages and he is sneaking off because he has these dreams of being a wrestler. He's a bigger guy and he's got this little scrawny guy with him and they're getting ready to wrestle these really tough guys. And so he comes out and he says, I forget what the guy's name is, Horatio or something. Horatio, why have you not been baptized? And the guy says, don't judge me because I believe in science. And he, he has this bowl in his hand and sneaks up behind him, grabs him by the back of the head and goes, hey, um, and that's funny, right? But in some ways, there are nuggets to truth there. There are nuggets of truth there ab- about some of the doctrine of Catholic Church. That the church institutes, applies the grace of God for man so that we do the sacraments, we get the help. In the Reformation... And one of the principles of the Reformation was absolutely not. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ alone. And he is sufficient. That my problem is that I have a sin problem and the solution to my sin problem is the cross. That on the cross, on the cross, Christ takes on my sin. He becomes my punishment. The punishment Christ bore was my punishment. And he bore that punishment. And as a sacrifice, he was the perfect sacrifice. There was no blemish in him at all. And so he was acceptable to God. And not only did Christ take on my sin, but the righteousness from the perfect life that he lived was applied to me. There's no other mediator necessary. Christ is sufficient. No other work needed. And not only that, but I want to just briefly mention the exclusivity of Christ. And that is, is that there is no other way. There is no other way under which man can be saved. But by the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now. Does scripture. Point us to this. And here is one of the places in preaching where reformational theology and the theology of the reformation is most useful and they would say this you have not preached a sermon unless you talk about jesus christ you have not interpreted god's word correctly when you open up god's word you have not interpreted the word correctly if it doesn't go back to jesus christ that he is everywhere in the scripture we think about it from the very beginning jesus christ was co-creator with god When man falls in the garden, what is it that God says to the serpent? He says, there will be one born of a woman who will crush your head. And then we look throughout the Old Testament and we look uh, to just 
several things here, but we look to where the law is given. What is the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to show us our need of a savior, that we couldn't do it on our own, that we were continually lacking, that the law could not save us, that our good works could not save us. That is the point of the law in the Old Testament. What is the point of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament? The point of the sacrificial system is that we need someone or something to stand in the gap for us. That we need a perfect sacrifice. Jesus Christ. What is the point in the Bible of judges? All these men and women judges in in and through the Bible and they failed miserably. Why did they fail miserably? Because they were to point us to the real judge, Jesus Christ. The kings of the Bible, great, wonderful guys, just perfect, right? It's exactly what Israel needed. No, the point of God giving Israel a king was to point them to the king of kings who would come as the ultimate king of the universe. The prophecies, the prophecies, all the prophecies in the Bible are about a fulfillment of a promise of God to ransom a people for himself. And the only way that is done is through Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, I shouldn't even have to say anything about this, but the New Testament, every page, everywhere, is about Jesus, the work that he's done, and the result, the, 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 the conclusion based on that, how we should live. And then you have the book of Revelation. Where you have in the book of Revelation, as John is called up into the vision and as he sees this, these scrolls that are there and says, who is worthy to open the scroll? And you remember this, this always gets me. John said John was weeping because no one there was worthy to open the scroll. And then the slaughtered lamb comes forward. Who is the only one worthy to open up the scroll. And the conclusion. Is that Jesus will come back. And ransom his bride for himself. Brother and sister. Christ alone. Is the point of the Bible. So. What about today? (laughs) Christ must be the center of everything that we do. There's a real uh, good little book. If you want to just a short read, many of you can read it in one sitting. It took me two or three days. Um, Short little book um, by Carl Truman. Uh, It was written in the 90s about Reformation today, tomorrow and forever, something like that. But if you look that up, you'll find it. Little book. But he says this on page 67 of this book. Thus, when we plan our church life and judge its success, let us not be guided by management technique or modern theories of presentation and influence. The basic principles of church life and practice are laid down in the Bible or exemplified in the lives of biblical saints. Is the church weak and despised by society at the moment? Well, that is sad, but on another level, who cares? We are not meant to be respectable, to have political influence, or to be an organization that those outside admire for our slickness and savvy. We are meant to be those who preach Christ to the world around us, both in our words and in our deeds. I find it worrying when evangelical success comes to be measured 
in the categories of worldly success for precisely this reason. We are not meant to be successful by worldly standards. We are meant to be faithful and biblical. We are meant to be faithful by biblical standards. And the example of Christ indicates that these two are, in the end of the day, implacably opposed to each other. Every sermon, every song, every lesson, every function. Only Christ. Only Christ. Because man's greatest need is not to make his marriage better. It's not to get a bare paying job. It's not to overcome depression. It's not to overcome anxieties. It's not to overcome sickness. Man's greatest need is his separation from God. And it's found in only one place, and that's Christ alone. And if we as a church drift from this center, then we are guilty of the most damnable offense that there is. Christ alone. For the glory of God alone. And we have a battle in America, don't we? Pluralism. Secularism, postmodernism, even in our circles, evangelical circles, um, you know, it, it's interesting that somebody can be held in high esteem in evangelical circles and uh, not believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, not believing in the exclusivity or sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus and, and be held in high esteem in our day and age. There are there are men out there under the guise of being preachers of the gospel that are writing books that have nothing to do with who Christ is and in the sufficiency and exclusivity of Christ is the only one to save sinners. There are men and women out there writing music and songs under the guise of Christianity that are not for the glory of God, but for the glory of man. Church. One of the battle cries of the Reformation is that we must always be reforming and we must always be reforming because this body and the corporate body of the church is made up of men and women who are fallible. And we had the tendency to drift. That's why those verses in Hebrews chapter two are so important. Be careful lest you drift. Now. I thought about this this morning. Um, I thought it was clever. You may not say it's clever, but it. I, I thought it hit it well. Before I say it, let me say why it came to my mind. I think many of the problems with the church is that we get to a place where we think the message is outdated or old or not applicable. The message of the Bible Therefore, we must do something to catch the ears and the sight and the emotions of the people. In other words, some may say this is where the phrase I thought was pretty clever comes in. Some may say, you know, you Bible believing fundamental, whatever they want to call us, me. You're a one hit wonder. And I say, you know what? You're right. You're right. I am a one hit wonder. But the wonder of that one hit is inexhaustible. And it's on the wonder of that one hit that Lewis, only by the grace of God, and I ask you to hold me accountable to this, will stand and preach and proclaim. So we need to pray. 
We need to examine our own lives and our own hearts. And we need to examine our own motives. We need to think about what it is is that our chief end. We need to think about where do we stand? And I think all of us every day, that's part of the reason for having devotionals in the morning. Is to recenter us on what is the main thing. And the main thing is the glory of God. And the only way that we can give glory to God is through Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I was reminded this morning uh, with my daughter, we were listening to um, Christian radio and there was a great song until the line came up that you didn't want heaven without us. I was reminded again this morning that God, we have to judge everything according to your word. God, you are the totally happy, most complete, glorious, majestic being in the universe. And God, it should amaze us because of our assault on your glory, which is deserving of Everything that we have, we assaulted that by our sin. And it is it should just amaze us and our mouths should just be left wide open that you would make a way to which we could be reconciled to you and that we could enjoy you and that we could give glory and honor and praise to you. It is what you created us for. God, I pray, Lord, that if there's one here this morning. That um, God doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior. God, I pray that your spirit might have just this morning opened their eyes to who your son is and what their need is. And that how that need can be reconciled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that you would give them boldness to step forward and talk. God, for the rest of us. God, I pray that as we read our Bibles, that we would read it through the grid in which you intended it to be read. And that was for your glory and the person of Jesus. And so that when we read things about difficult times, sickness, depressions, anxiety, good times, times of wealth and prosperity, that we look at all of that through the lens of that we were even we were given those things, whether sickness or prosperity, for one reason, and that's for your glory. God, help us. You have helped us by sending us your son. And by giving us your word. God, to you be the glory forever and ever. In your son's name, Jesus. Amen.